You're listening to On The Verge, a podcast about solving the security risks of the 21st century, produced by the Council on Strategic Risks. Tune in for expert interviews about some of today's most pressing existential problems, including climate change, global pandemics, bioweapons, and nuclear proliferation. We'll discuss some of the major challenges and outline potential solutions for preventing worst-case scenarios. At the Council on Strategic Risks, we believe that we are on the verge of a better tomorrow. Hey everyone, my name is Natasha Bajma. I'm the director of the Converging Risk Lab at the Council on Strategic Risks. In today's episode, you'll hear a discussion between myself, Andy Weber, and Ron Pfizer about the future of countering WMD. This is the first in a series of discussions we'll be having on this topic. We kick off the discussion by considering whether the Biden administration should reboot the strategy to combat weapons of mass destruction that was first issued in 2002. If you're interested in going into depth on this topic, I've written a three-part briefer exploring whether we should move beyond the WMD paradigm. As of the release of this episode, two of the three are published. I'll definitely link to the briefers in the show notes, so please check it out um, on our website. Let's go to the interview. So today I'm really excited for the first in a series of discussions to advise the new administration about countering WMD and other weapons of mass effect. Two esteemed guests are joining me for this, what I hope will be a fascinating discussion. Ron Pfizer is a retired U.S. Army Colonel and fellow at LMI. He has served in the force for 30 years in various command staff and leadership positions across the Army, Joint Staff, and the Office of the Secretary of Defense. Andy Weber is a senior fellow at the Council on Strategic Risks. He is the former Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear, Chemical, and Biological Defense Programs and has spent decades working to reduce the risk of weapons of mass destruction. Ron, Andy, welcome to On the Verge. Thanks. It's great to be here, Natasha. Thank you. When I first started my career around the time of 9-11, U.S. policymakers considered the use of WMD by terrorists um, not as a matter of if, but when. The predicted threat hasn't really played out as expected. Over the past two decades, we've seen a number of instances of WMD use, but not at the level of mass casualties and mass destruction, as I think we all feared would happen. In your view, how has the threat posed by weapons of mass destruction evolved in recent years? How serious is the threat relative to other threats we face today? So Natasha, that's a great question. I think um, it comes down to the terms that you used in the introduction of mass destruction and mass effect. Um, clearly the, the weapons that were envisioned when the definition of weapons of mass destruction were defined, kind of carried back to World War II and the first use of uh, firebombing. And then over time, it started to include those uh, chemical and biological and nuclear weapons. And for a long time, we focused on the uh, casualty rates or the effect um, being wide ranging. Uh, and we have not seen necessarily the wide ranging in terms of numbers of casualties. But what we have seen is, I think, the effect. It's caused both uh, effects at the tactical level to change how individuals respond to um, an event like that, whether it's being used by a uh, uh, group in the Middle East to provide to 
uh, deliver crude mustard um, and having maybe limited effects on the individuals, but uh, having an effect at the tactical level on operations. I think we've seen it have uh, similar effects in Syria by the uh, use of chlorine and sarin, but we also saw that there was an international response to that. Um, and so the, the effect was beyond the battlefield where individuals and leaders, um, both you know, public individuals, public leaders, as well as military leaders took notice of that. And at least it entered into their calculus. And I believe that that's where we continue, we will continue to see this threat um, have an impact and it may not be the physical results of the employment of a chemical or a biological weapon or even the effects of a nuclear weapon that really are the mass effects that come from the event. It's the collateral effects, um, both in maybe the, the um, media response, um, the fact that it creates economic or information disruption that comes with that disinformation that comes along with that. And so I think that's what's made it more difficult is because it's become more complex. It's no longer just the weapon itself and the immediate uh, physical effects that it has. Well, thanks, Natasha. Ron, uh, it's a pleasure to be on this show with you, Ron. Uh, we served alongside each other when Ron was in, in uniform as a United States Army soldier. I, um, I think in answer to your question, it's really uh, that we've been successful. We've been um, successful beyond our expectations at the time. Um, on the counterterrorism fight, uh, we, we kept Al-Qaeda and then ISIS on the run, uh, kept strong pressure up against them, and they uh, both uh, didn't get very far in their aspirations to acquire and deploy weapons of mass destruction. On the sort of rogue state side, um, well, you know, early in my career, we used to talk about five rogue states with WMD programs, Iraq, Libya, Syria, Iran, and North Korea. And essentially now we're down to North Korea. Um, Iraq no longer has weapons of mass destruction. Libya gave up its weapons of mass destruction programs. Syria has been largely denuded thanks to the successful inter international effort. Um, highlighted in the recent book by Joby Warwick, uh, Redline, about the destruction of their chemical weapons stockpile. And Iran, if we can get back to the JCPOA, that will prevent them from developing a nuclear weapon. So it's down to, from, from five to one, essentially, with North Korea and its uh, robust nuclear missile programs, but also chemical and biological weapons programs. The other point is for, for the last 30 years, we were involved in a major prevention effort through the Nunn-Luger Cooperative Threat Reduction Programs that were aimed primarily at the supply of weapons, materials, and expertise that could be used to develop weapons of mass destruction. And in prevention programs, right, you don't get credit for what didn't happen, but we avoided catastrophe. Yeah, those are two really, really excellent points. I, I think, you know, you know, you're so right to point out um, just the, the level of priority that we've given WMD over the last three decades and how much has actually been achieved. And through through the Nunn-Luger program I was involved with when, when we worked at the Pentagon together and, and many other efforts. And I, I think that really speaks to, I think, the importance of um, that focus uh, of countering WMD. And Ron, you bring up a, a fascinating point as well, 
you know, you, you say effects, effects, strategic effects, all of these weapons do have strategic effects and it doesn't matter whether they're used on the, you know, high casualty destruction spectrum. Well, it does matter, but I, even at the low casualty um, destruction spectrum, they still have strategic effects. I think it's really good to point that out, um, that the use of VX, for example, in Malaysia to kill, um, assassinate Kim Jong-un's brother, um, the use of Novichok um, allegedly by Russia to try, attempt to assassinate um, dissidents. Um, I, I think that speaks to, you know, why would they choose that over some other easier way to assassinate, right? I think it, it speaks to the potential for that media impact, for that strategic impact. So I think that's a really great um, sum up. In, in 2002, uh, President George W. Bush issued the first ever strategy to combat weapons of mass destruction. It was the first strategy to focus specifically on that. I believe that elevated efforts to address the threat of nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons even further across the government. Um, Ron, you argued recently in a piece that you think now is a time to reboot this strategy. Can you tell us why you think that's the case and what you would specifically propose to the current administration. And spoiler alert, I'm not yet sure if I agree with you, so I'm interested in hearing the case you make. Sure. Um, so I think what Andy highlighted is uh, a number of successes that we had that I think even led to the creation of that strategy to kind of codify those efforts. And really, if you go back and read the strategy, a lot of the uh, uh, assertions and goals that were set in there really kind of back up what Andy talked about, which was really using those uh, international regimes and norms to influence those to move to a position to get rid of those stockpiles and um, choose not to use chemical and biological or nuclear weapons as weapons of mass destruction. Um, it also talked about the need to make sure that we are prepared if, if those things fail or if there is a use. Um, in that 20 years, I think we've learned a lot. And, and part of the reason why I assert that we need to reboot our strategy is because we have been successful, we've also created gaps. Some of those gaps are created because um, the demonstration of the use of these weapons um, by uh, the assassination attempts, some of the limited battlefield effects, I think it opens up the opportunity for others to see, well, I don't necessarily have to attain a weapon that creates mass effect, or mass casualties, but I can get a mass effect out of that. I potentially can shift national strategy. Um, and the reason I believe that the, it's time to reboot that is because in that 20 years, there have been a number of uh, national documents that have been published that have expounded upon that and filled in some of the uh, the gaps or addressed emerging um, challenges over time. So for example, we have a national strategy to counter WMD terrorism. That's a great thing. Um, we have a national biodefense strategy, also a great thing. Uh, but with the national uh, strategy to combat weapons of mass destruction, I think it relies one on those international re regimes and norms that the US maybe needs to be more assertive in not only reestablishing those, but even reshaping them for a future where technology is changing that landscape. And by that, I mean that it's no longer a state program uh, level of effort to actually develop and deploy a chemical weapon or a, ch a chemical that could be used as a weapon. 
the same thing is happening on the scale for life sciences and allowing biological agents to potentially be developed with much less cost and with similar or maybe even greater effects. Um, and I think it's part of our um, inherent success that we need to continue to build upon, which is to reestablish that non-proliferation pillar in a way that says we want to promote the good use of science, but we also want to make sure that those norms reinforce the lack of pursuit or limit the opportunities to pursue it for nefarious uh, reasons. And then part and parcel of that, I think we also have to maintain the ability to respond because in responding effectively, either to stop the proliferation of technology or to prevent the use or respond to the use, um, we reinforce those norms with a deterrence that is actually meaningful and will help to um, basically allow those that are seeking to be compliant to remain compliant and those that maybe are considering these as part of their arsenal to reconsider that. And whether that be a rogue actor, as Andy described, a non-state actor or terrorist or a state that uh, is choosing to go a different direction. And so those are some of the reasons why I believe it's perfectly perfect timing to fill in that gap that I think has been created over the time from our successes, as well as from the creation of some of these other supplemental or, or complementary strategies. I completely agree with Ron. And one of the other reasons we need to update our, our strategies for countering weapons of mass destruction is this uh, new phenomenon that, that I don't think we um, anticipated. Uh, you mentioned the, uh, the Russian attack, and, uh, attack with Novichok chemical weapons in Salisbury and the North Korean attack with VX in Kuala Lumpur. Um, those were uh, you know, targeted assassination, assassinations or assassination attempts, most recently the Russian attack on, on Navalny inside Russia. Um, so these are covert attacks, but what's different is that's not WMD terrorism. Uh, you know, WMD terrorism, the terrorists had the intent to kill massive amounts of people, but they didn't have the capabilities. But now you have the capabilities of a state, in this case, Russia and North Korea, behind covert attacks in peacetime using weapons of mass destruction. And that's a relatively new phenomenon. I don't even think we have the right vocabulary how to describe that. But for example, the perfume bottle that was recovered in a dumpster in Salisbury that the two um, GRU officers used in their assassination attempt um, against uh, Sergei Skripal in Salisbury, that had over 10,000 lethal doses of Novichok chemical weapons agent. So imagine if their mission had been different. What if their mission had been to take out a command structure or a military base or a company um, and this is a new phenomenon, and we need to really re-up deterrence. Um, you know, for example, in biodefense, the goal of the Department of Defense should not be to view biodefense bio as a support function that enables our soldiers to carry out traditional combat operations in a contaminated environment on a traditional battlefield. The mission of the Department of Defense should be to prevent, to deter bioattacks, period. And in so doing, and in making those investments and showing our adversaries 
that bioattacks will not be effective because our defenses are so good, um, we, we will also solve the problem of pandemics um, because there's such an overlapping infrastructure required for both dealing with natural disease outbreaks and deliberate attacks. And that's why the Council on Strategic Risks has been focusing on, a, on an effort to support policies that would make bioweapons obsolete. Yeah, I think those are really two good points. They bring up actually some of um, uh, the reason why I'm not sure about rebooting a strategy. The first one being uh, vocabulary, as you pointed out, Andy, I think we don't have the right vocabulary. We don't have the right criteria for what these weapons are. They're obviously capable of mass destruction and mass casualties, but they're not being used that way. So how do we, you know, is, is mass destruction, is that distracting? Should we call them weapons of mass effect? Should we call them, I like to call them weapons of mass agility. The ability, as you point out, that bottle to contain the potential for mass uh, casualties, but yet it was only used um, for a very limited use. And so there's this kind of spectrum that those these weapons seem to be able to slide up and down, but yet have, as Ron, you pointed out, this enormous strategic impact, which incentivizes their use. And so the second reason I'm a little resistant to the notion of rebooting a strategy, at least the way that we've had one, is the question of the tools in our toolbox. I think one of the struggles or the gaps that we faced is that the tools that we've designed were designed for the Cold War perception of the WMD threat, right? So we perceived the potential for states or non-state actors to use these these weapons to cause mass casualties and mass destruction. So the tools in the toolbox are really about sanctions, about you know potential military action, um, disarmament, all of those um, things that we've done over the years to reduce the threat that you know uh, we face. So my question back to you is: Are the tools we have in the toolbox just are they not effective for meeting these? Do we need new tools or? Is it really just a mindset vocabulary switch that we would need? If we were going to reboot such a strategy, what would you recommend the administration be thinking about? So I think Natasha, those are some great points and they're definitely good reasons to challenge whether we should reboot or maybe reboot is the correct term. Um, you, building on that term, I think that um, you're absolutely correct that there needs to be a dialogue um, within the administration. And really it needs to be bipartisan in a way that I think the 2002 strategy was able to build on bipartisan support to say, if the US is committed to this, and that's why I think it has to be a national strategy because it has to drive down into the departments and agencies to look at this differently, then what are the terms that we need to come back and agree upon or potentially obsolesce and say that yes, Weapons of mass destruction is a term that can be used very broadly and, and very um, effectively to encompass chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear effects. But maybe we need to be more targeted. Um, and I think that's part of a discussion that we need to have that goes back and says, well, we had these tools and we actually supported international norms and standards around the regulation of chemical, biological, and, and nuclear materials and weapons. But those norms and standards are quickly going to become um, outdated, not just because of the use and some of the erosion of the ability to enforce that, but also because the way technology is advancing to where um, those documents that govern the uh, conventions tend to be very based on agreements and very specific scientific definitions that we see, uh, for example, the difficulty of we can have 
the agent that was used in Salisbury listed on the uh, Chemical Weapons Convention. And we can everybody agree that we should be um, ascribing to make sure nobody can produce that. But then we have the debate about, you know, fentanyls. Are they a weapon of mass destruction? Are they a illicit drug? Or are they something that's actually used to effectively treat individuals with pain? Well, they do all three, but how do you control that within the CWC's current uh, framework? And then add the complexity of fentanyl is a category of agents that very quickly can be changed through uh, um, um, the manipulation of the production to where the specific compound that's listed may not be the compound that we're trying to chase. Those are all the reasons why I think we have great lessons learned to build on. But to your point, I think the tools that we have in the toolbox are not well uh, suited to both today's threats. And really more importantly, I think the reboot in the strategy sets us up to look at the future threats. And it also, again, as I said, I think it helps to clarify we need all department agencies to work together. So since 2002, we saw a lot of capabilities developed across the US government, not just within DOD, to really get after the weapons of mass destruction threat. So there were there are capabilities that, don't, that didn't exist in 2002 in DOD. There's capabilities that exist today in Department of Justice that didn't exist in 2002. There's capabilities in Department of Homeland Security. And I would even argue that within Health and Human Services, there's capabilities that they have developed and they have helped us to Andy's point, um, I'll respond to a naturally occurring event. Um, that's a secondary benefit, but the principal benefit I think of the reboot is to get everybody focused on what do we need to do for the next 10 to 20 years and not be stuck hoping that what we've done for the last 20 will be adequate enough to deal with the changing environment. Yeah, so I'm still comfortable with the term weapons of mass destruction because it's, um so well understood, but what's not helpful about the term is lumping these different threats, these distinct threats together, because nuclear is its own category. Um, Bioweapons are its own category. Chemical weapons are its own category, although there's some uh, convergence between biological and chemical weapons. But, you know, the example Ron gave of fentanyl. So my understanding is that uh, a sugar packet of, of, of uh, some of the fentanyl uh, analogs has 84,000 lethal doses. If that's not a weapon of mass destruction, then I don't know what is. I mean, clearly that can be used as a weapon of mass destruction. We've seen the Russian military use it in a hostage uh, uh, rescue attempt where they killed over a hundred of the hostages uh, in the Northeast theater in Moscow. So, um, and the Department of Defense has always viewed fentanyls as a chemical weapon, period. Uh, there's no doubt about that. So why should the Department of Justice uh, view it as something other than a weapon of mass destruction? I mean, it is a chemical weapon and it can kill uh, many, many thousands of people. And what's new about uh, fentanyls is there's a, they're sold on the market. They're sold on the black market. So I talked about the capability gap of terrorist groups but now you can just buy it. Uh, you know, I understand that on the dark web you can you can buy a kilo of carfentanil for five to eight thousand dollars and have it mailed to your house. And if it doesn't get delivered, they'll send another kilo. So uh, you know, this is a new phenomenon. You don't need a big industrial capability and advanced scientific uh, capability to develop weapons of mass destruction when it's uh, for purchase on the market. 
I think this also raises the broader point, and I really liked how you said that, you know, it, you know, WMD is not the problem. It's lumping nuke, bio, and chem together and then excluding things that should belong in the category of WMD from that category. So I would, I would extend the question, should we, should we think about other technologies um, and scenarios that have the potential for mass effect and, and bring them under the umbrella of WMD? For example, drones. Drones are weapons of mass agility. Um, you can use them for assassination. You can use them for to attack a structure and, and cause damage to a structure. You can use them on a stadium full of soft targets, especially if you were to combine that with fentanyl or, or a bio um, weapon. So I, I'm curious, you know, if we reboot this WMD strategy, is there room for other technologies and scenarios? So Tasha, I think there is. I will tell you that I know um, after the 2002 strategy was uh, published and Department of Defense looked at their own supporting strategy of how they're going to implement their roles and responsibilities. Uh, their initial strategy had eight mission areas. And one of the areas that uh, was very hotly debated was in that uh, terminology, do, do we include delivery systems or not? Um, and that was, I think, still continues today of those that have a very um, strong opinion that they should not be included for different reasons. But I think to your point, um, I think we have to have that conversation and figure out as from the national level, um, not only do we build upon, as Andy said, the definition of WMD that's well understood and be very specific of how we're applying the elements underneath, but I think we also have to recognize that there are complementary technologies that have to be considered as part of this um, because that gets to the national ability to implement this. I think the other ones that have to come in uh, context with this, and I'm a firm believer that these all lead to the effective deterrence value that has to be underpinning this all is, um, the role of information te uh, technology and um, you know not only mass but strategic communications because they both have the ability to be used by an adversary in conjunction with uh, one of these weapons to amplify the effects confuse the response but they also become part of the both deterrence and effective response to be able to minimize that and be able to assure um, those that may be in the area that is uh, um, affected, but they may not have been directly affected, uh, on how to appropriately respond and reduce that uh, mass impact effect um, that some of these weapons would have. And so I think it's definitely something that needs to be part of the conversation, uh, but I think we have to recognize that going into it, that it may not be central to this uh, strategy, but it certainly has to be something that is, um, complementary to, imp to implementing the strategy. And that's the other point that any strategy that we write, we really need to be deliberate about taking that next step and focusing on the, what are we doing to get after achieving whatever the agreed upon goals are of that strategy. Uh, so it gets back to your point of building the effective tools, sharpening those tools or making sure that they are exercised and then uh, modernizing and maturing them over time as the environment or landscape changes. Yeah, I agree with that, Ron. The, um, the point about drones that you raised, Natasha, it, it, it sort of points out another difference. There was a time uh, early in my career when, when weapons of mass destruction and delivery systems were um, the exclusive domain of governments, of, of militaries around the world. Um, 
it's different now. I mean, I can go to Best Buy and buy a drone. That, that's new. I mean, that has changed. A lot of these things are commercially available in a way that, that wasn't the case. So with the exception of nuclear weapons, which still remain a monopoly of a handful of states, um, including the United States, Russia, and uh, a, a number of others around the world, uh, these other um, delivery capabilities and even weapons of mass destruction are um, increasingly available to non-state actors. And, and that's, that is a new phenomenon. I think all really great points. Um, and this is just the start of a discussion we're gonna have. Um, so um, I'll close it here and um, look forward to chatting with you and digging a little bit deeper next time. So thanks so much for joining the show. Thank, thank you, you, Natasha, Ron. Yeah, thank you. Uh, great being on uh, again to talk these things with you, Andy and Natasha and look forward to future uh, conversations. Thank you for listening to On The Verge. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to leave us a review. For more information on the work of the Council on Strategic Risks, please visit us at councilonstrategicrisks.org, or you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn.